Good morning, everyone. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Found a little change this morning. First, um, I need to thank Lee and Danny for getting me on my computer. Um, quite the challenge this morning here at WDEV. Um, because I'm on my computer because uh, my guest this morning, who uh, is Robert Carpenter, who's the chair of the EWSD school board in Essex, um, up in Essex, uh, was scheduled to come on and talk to us about, oh, property tax. There's a discussion. And um, Robert called this morning, and I heard that he is very sick and won't be able to come, so you've got me for the hour. Steve um, Steve from the VSEA, Steve Howard is coming in from 10 to 11, and we've got lots of stuff to talk about. But first, I have a public apology to Roger Hill. He was on last Tuesday, and I was insisting that I saw penguins in Alaska. Well, when you're old, you get confused. It was a, it was um, puffins. I can't even think of the word. There was an island uh, that had all these puffins on it, and I was very disappointed in the color of those things, and I mixed them up with penguins, and Roger kept saying, I don't think there's penguins in Alaska. Oh, yes, there is, I say. So anyway, I did write him and apologize to him. It was a great show, and I thank him very much for coming on. So let me talk a little bit about my guest who can't come with us today. Um, we're going to have him back on, I hope, next week uh, to talk about uh, this 20 point, I think it's up to 20.6% property tax at the moment. He, along with um, many other supervisors and boards, um, wrote a letter to the Ways and Means Committee saying, we have to do something, people. This is not good. Uh, he got 14 Vermont school districts and supervisory unions to sign on to this letter, he and others. Um, and it was highlighting the, and I quote, the catastrophic financial scenarios towns are expecting across the state. Um, people are not happy. I think in fairness to Ways and Means Committee, they are really working very hard to try to figure something out. Um, the latest thing they talked about um, was removing the cap, the 5% cap, um, and or postponing um, the vote on our school budgets uh, to see if we have some time to think about things and what we can do. I know when the governor um, signed Act 127 last year, he did it along with a note that said, um, I'm not so sure about this. This may, uh, may backfire, uh, and it has. Uh, if you'll remember, I actually thought it was a good idea, uh, redefining pupil waiting, uh, with the intent of more equitably accounting for the cost of education and students. And we had a couple of people on the show to talk about it. And it seemed to be a much broader um, list of things that should be considered with pupil waiting. And it seemed to be all-encompassing and um, made sense, I must say. And obviously it made sense to them because they passed it. Uh, but it had it as... Um, one finds out in the legislature and, and in the world, and we're doing things, it's got some consequences. And when the dominoes began to to fall, um, we were stuck with a 20.6% property tax increase. And um, I know they are working hard. I was uh, hoping that Peter Anthony from the Ways and Means Committee could come on, but he got so many things going on in Ways and Means that he wasn't able to join us. So I will have uh, Richard Carpenter um, come on hopefully next week to get into this. It's a great school, by the way. I have did a lot of research on what they are um, involved in. Um, 
and they do a lot of um, a lot of stuff on the arts and obviously reading, writing, and arithmetic. They've got uh, wonderful things for their kids that I will let Richard talk about next week without stealing his thunder. So um, I'm sorry he can't join us. Hope he gets better, and I hope we, we can get him on next week. So for the rest of the hour, you've got me. And what I was hoping to do was to talk about um, some of the bills that I've been covering with one of my other hats on. Um, and the one I found the most interesting, I love this, the wealth tax. And everybody goes, yay, you know, tax the wealthy. And um, I know that uh, Steve Howard's group, the VSEA, is very supportive of doing that. Uh, the bill is H827, or uh, there's two actually, h Eight two eight, um, and they had. This is what I wanted to share with you. They had this guy on. Um, I listened to the to the recorded uh, tape. His name is Cristobal Cristobal Young. He's an associate professor of sociology at Cornell University. Not bad, and he did an excellent presentation on the myth of millionaire flight. When you increase taxes for the millionaires, do they actually leave? And it was fascinating listening to him. He said that his first case study he did was from New Jersey, which is my home state. Um, and he started to work on this topic from New Jersey. And back in 2003, New Jersey passed a millionaire tax. And New Jersey, apparently, I didn't know it because I wasn't one of them. New Jersey has the highest percentage of millionaires in the country. Go figure, New Jersey. Um, and it was the first tax of its kind. And at the time, New Jersey had a marginal tax rate, but raised it to nearly 9% in 2004. And there was a lot of concern expressed by Governor Christie at the time, and I remember, I, for some reason I remember this, because uh, neighboring Pennsylvania had a flat tax rate of 3%, and they were concerned that people were going to move right across the state line to um, from 9 to 3%. That's quite the job, uh, drop. So he talked about what the taxes were in the area at the time. Uh, New York, the five New York boroughs were at 10.5%. New Jersey, as I said, was 8.95%, close enough to 9. New York uh, was 6.85, um, the rest outside the boroughs. Connecticut was 5%, and Pennsylvania, as I just said, was 3%. So, um, and he found that when the number of millionaires grew, it seemed to be through increased revenue um, rather than increase um, in other words, if if they're getting their increase and in their money from their companies, they tend to stay because they have a vested interest in the company. And as we get older, you've got a vested interest in your neighbors and your doctors and your community and your churches, and you're not so willing to pick up and move. Um, he did say, however, that the uh, really wealthy, I guess the billionaire class, um, found it uh, that they wanted to move because I'm sure they – got got taxed even higher. Um, so the people that made their income from investments were more likely to move than those who made their income from salary because they've, as I just said, they've got more vested interest in their community. Um, and he also said that, uh, and I think the same holds true with us retirees. He said that retired folks do not have the same, do not have the higher migration rate than people currently working. 
Um, and um, I know we talk about leaving sometimes when I get a little upset or angry about whatever's going on. Um, but you know, you're you're you've got your home. You've, it's where it where you like it. Um, you've got a fixed income. It's not going anywhere. And um, you've got your friends and all the things I just uh, talked about. Well, maybe you don't want to. Besides the thought of actually packing up a 27 years of household stuff that's gathering is a little scary. Um, so, um, and I think, you know, your kids are, generally speaking, of course, these days they're more apt to move than, than you are. Um, and he showed a map of the U.S. that indicated where millionaires tend to live. And they live mostly on the east and west coast. And you want to talk about high taxes, we can talk about California. Um, but they're there and they're, um, there didn't seem to be any measurable relationship um, with where they lived and the level of taxes. They are there for other reasons. The ocean, the sun, the warmth, that leaves the east, the west coast, not the east coast. Um, and there's a lot in our area here. Um, and what he was talking about, which was very interesting, he said, can you or should you um, tax? And he called it deliberative democracy, which is what he was saying is let the people decide whether you can tax millionaires more. It's not illegal. You just can do it. Um, and some will move away. And what you need to find out is what is that optimal tax rate? Where is that balancing point where people, anybody says enough's enough? Um, and I think everybody, including those of us who don't have that kind of money, uh, it's enough is enough. There's a point at which they have to decide what that optimal tax rate is. Um, and then the the risk the the risk you run that he said uh, is that the the more you get more revenue, um, individuals start finding clever ways to perhaps hide the revenue, um, and or maybe they stop working so hard to not make the the revenue that they were making. Um, but he said the perception that millionaires will move is so wrong, and he this is cool. He said it's a young person's game. He said it's not about rich people. It's about age and education. And every state wants more rich people, but they're not that mobile. Uh, and he said perhaps the focus should be about attracting young people at the beginning of their career and let them grow their wealth in our state. Uh, and I thought that was a great piece of advice. We have a lot to offer here in Vermont. So we attract um, young people and uh, let them stay and give them the opportunity to grow their wealth, which um, benefits everybody. Um, so I thought he was very interesting. Um, I'm going to pull up some more. I also covered that was he was very articulate too. And if you are interested in seeing, he presented a huge um, a map, a lot of statistics, a lot of um, documentation to support his position. And he's obviously been working on this for quite a while since. Uh, um, that happened quite a few years ago about New Jersey. I was living there at the time and vaguely remember all of this discussion. Um, anyway, the, um, the other committee that I, other committee that I watched and listened to, and we've covered this issue about the Vermont State Ethics Commission and, uh, implementing a state ethics code. Um, I've had Christina Siverit on, who's the co- uh, executive director for the, um, Ethics Commission. We also had Ted Brady on just last week, I believe, who's the executive director for the League of Cities and Towns, who is not happy that the legislature is um, looking to implement an ethics code 
our municipalities. And um, uh, that was a very interesting discussion. And I I do understand um, everything is local, as they say. And we were talking about the usual 10 people that sort of do everything in town. They're in all the committees. And there's bound to be on a local level in Vermont, a, a state this size, where there are conflicts of interest. Um, and he gave some um, recommendations to the legislature, um, to House GovOps. Oh, we also had uh, the chair of that committee on, Mike McCarthy, who talked about ethics. Uh, right now it's being stalled. I don't know what's going to happen to the bill. There's two of them. There are draft bills in the committee, which is hard to find the draft bills um, because they haven't had a number assigned to them. Um, but um, I've, I've been able to find, get copies of, of what the committee is looking at now. And they're, they're held up. They want, um, candidates and, um, to submit, um, financial reports as we, we all do when we're candidates. But they were expanding those requirements a little bit and, um, were really hung up on, on what to ask and what is, what is reasonable to ask and what is an invasion of, um, of privacy. Um, and then the the municipal ethics framework that we talked about um, that um, I understand where Ted is coming from most of the time the the local folks um, tend to monitor themselves I've always talked about uh, Tom Lozon who when he was the mayor of Barry whenever there was a uh, council meeting and there was an issue, he's in construction, and um, whenever there was an issue, he always stepped down and said, I've got a conflict of interest, got off the chair, uh, went and talked, uh, went sat in the, in the public seats and let the council vote without him. Um, I also remember Jim Condos, when he was in the legislature and then later became our Secretary of State, he also, uh, when there was an issue of energy, and he felt that given his his job that uh, that there was a conflict that he would step down. And uh, actually in the legislature, they they he presents his concerns and they vote on whether the legislature feels it's a conflict of interest. Uh, generally speaking, they would say, no, it's not because it's a general rule. If a, if a bill specifically, um, benefits the individual, well, then there is a conflict of interest. But if it's one of those, look at how many teachers we have in this, in the state house and they vote on pensions and they vote on things which don't, which may influence, which may impact them individually, but generally the bill is intended to impact all people in the pension plans. Um, so, um, we've had that discussion off and on and, and it's real in Vermont. It's for sure real in my town in Berlin. It just, it happens. Um, and as long as we're aware of it and people acknowledge it, um, and Ted said that most towns have their own ethics policy. Um, the one benefit from uh, having the ethics commission is that individuals who have an issue of uh, potential conflict of interest have a confidential place to go. The ethics commission will hear your complaint, do investigation, do some research, and um, if may write a, an opinion, which um, sort of negates the confidentiality of it, but initially you have a place to go. I know a lot of people might find it difficult to um, <clears throat> to go up to the a judiciary and complain about a, a judge or go to a um, the legislature and complain about a legislature. That would be hard. I remember one time when I was um, uh, head of motor vehicles 
I required all new employees to walk, come across the street with me, with me to talk, to go take a tour of the state house. And, um, because I thought, you know, we're there to support the, the legislature. So it's right across the street and you should know about it. So many of my employees never have been in the state house. And I'm walking one, one woman across the street and I look at her and she is literally shaking. I'm like, what? What? And she said, I've never been here and I don't know what to expect. I went, Oh my word. <clears throat> this is a bad thing. Um, so, um, you, I, I like this setup with the ethics commission because it is a place, um, where you can go and, um, talk confidentially to see if you're, if you have something, um, to say and you're concerned about something. Is it real? Um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, I did just notice on my notes here about the ethics commission that, with regard to the municipality legislation, they would be adopting whistleblower protection for municipal complaints. And I, I'm surprised to read that because I'm assuming that whistleblower protection covers everybody in Vermont, but they specifically added the adoption of a whistleblower protection uh, for municipal employees. And that sort of bothers me. I'm, I'm hoping that's not totally true. Maybe they're just making sure that um, that people know they've got that whistleblower protection. Um, they also were looking for funding for the Ethics Commission. And um, the funding itself for state, for the three branches of government, comes from what they call an internal service fund where all departments kind of chip in. Um, plus, um, it comes from the Department of uh, Human Resources. Um, and so that's where the funding comes. If they include municipalities, there is a discussion about where that funding will come from, um, because it, uh, it should have some relationship to the source. Um, the Internal Service Fund and the uh, Human Resources Fund makes sense uh, to keep the Ethics Commission going at the moment. Uh, but municipalities um, may have a different idea about that. So they're going to have to talk about uh, how that funding gets uh um, gets uh, put into place. Um, the other committee I uh, was watching was the Pension Investment Commission and um, about the pension plan. And I think all of you may remember last year we covered so much about the um, the condition of the pension investment and the liability was, if I remember correctly, somebody should call me if this was forty five billion dollars. Um, of liability, they uh, the federal government changed the way uh, way things like the pension plan um, report their findings, and um, they changed it to the point where they recognized that outstanding liabilities um, would are in fact uh, should be part of the profit and loss, and so um, they I must give credit to the legislature last year they worked so hard on um, trying to um, put the ship right. Um, they also, and kudos to state employees um, and all those that were involved in the pension uh, plan, um, they gave up quite a bit. And um, I was very surprised and very pleased and proud of them. I thought that was great. They understood the severity of this situation. So the bill that passed has done a lot, but there's still more to do. And... Um, the testimony, everybody seemed fairly comfortable right now. We're going to have to revisit this issue and, 
in in a little while. The other discussion about the pension is the divestment from fossil fuels. And um, Tom Galanco, who's head of the VPIC committee, which is the uh, investment committee that takes care of the uh, pension funds, um, was was a little reluctant as as much of a statement as it is to divest from fossil fuel. Um, they they talked about um, I think there's 2.5 percent of the funds currently are in invested in fossil fuel stocks. Um, and what they said was if they divest, they really don't have a say. And if Vermont is um, supportive of divesting and uh, limiting fossil fuel, um, that they being on having hold of stocks and being on their board would give them an opportunity to speak up. Otherwise, they won't have a seat at the table. Um, and I think also Beth, Beth Pierce, when she was the treasurer, I remember – her saying, and I'm paraphrasing, but I remember that she said um, her role is to make money for the pension plan, and so that just to divest, to divest, as important as it is, um, we have to think about the impact of the revenue into the plan. And um, I certainly gave her credit for doing that. But the VPIC uh, um, staff is um, kind of reluctant a little bit to lose their voice at the table. Anyway, I was listening to House General Committee last uh, last week, and they had a lot of people come in to talk about housing. Now, there's a surprise. There is such a problem with housing. Um, with our uh, low and moderate income people, have uh, no housing, and the the devastation from the flood didn't help at all. There's still a lot of people not able to get back into their housing, not able to. I just spoke to somebody the other day who lost his house, he wants to rebuild, but he can't find construction people because they're all busy. They're all, you know, it's months and months out. So um, lots of problems down there. And I think that when you go through the city streets of Berlin, Montpelier, uh, Barry, it may look good, but behind the scenes, not so good. And they still need a lot of help. But anyway, I was listening to House General Committee, and I'll just read some of the comments that people, their witnesses said. The first uh, was Chris Connolly, who's the director of the Community Relations Champlain Housing Trust. And he said, I love this because it's true with everything. The biggest risk we can take is not acting. You can't, you can't complain or you can't justify if you don't do. So um, they have to do something. And of course, he mentioned permit reform. I think we've heard that every year. And there's such reluctance to to get down with Act 250 reform and to um, to really take a look, especially in housing, um, to help low and moderate income people. Um, he wanted to – he gave some explanation of what Vermont's going to look like in 10 years if we don't do something. And he had a very interesting um, slide deck that he showed. Um, and if we really were serious, he says – we could achieve 7,360 new housing units over the next decade. And uh, this would take about 160 to 180 million annually in new capital spending to achieve. But you would get your ROI, that's for sure, if we had 7,360 new housing units of affordable housing. Should have put that word in there. Uh, Representative Bloomley. Um, talked about uh, her concern that the 2025 budget has very little in in its um, in the heart of the bill, uh, heart of the budget for um, targeting housing. Um, and she said that the administration, which I don't know 
to be totally true. I don't know. Uh, administration seems to be counting on um, zoning reform locally to pave the way for new construction. And there could be a lot of room, uh, wiggle room in the zonings that we've created in our towns and should take a look at that. Um, if you can find the, the land and appropriate places for building, but we got to do something. Um, and um, Donnelly um, reiterated again that um, we have to look at Act 250 with and zoning. Step back and look at it um, with a little different light. What what can we do? Because um, we've got to um, be able to house these people. It was also interesting. Chris Winters, who's the commissioner of the Department for Children and Families, testified. And he said that, you know, they and many other, we had Capstone in here the other day. We have Washington County Mental Health in this area that help people to find housing. Um, and these are people that, that are their clients. And you can't find low-income housing or middle-income housing. Um, and he said that it's really difficult for those who are vulnerable um, they're living outside. You've got, this is not the greatest state to, to be living in with our adverse weather conditions. Um, and it's become almost catastrophic for them to deal with these people who do not have housing. And um, don't forget, a lot of these families um, have children and they are, they go to school and they're um, being subjected to some pretty serious weather conditions and we've got to do something. Um and Chris said that um, it's not getting any better. It's just getting worse and worse. Uh, they have five emergency shelter projects that they've started uh, with some one-time funding. Uh, there's a site in Montpelier with 15 units, St. Johnsbury with 24 units, Brattleboro, four units, and Burlington with 35 u- units. And they also have an expansion of a youth shelter in Burlington with 10 units, um, and they are asking for additional funding for those projects in 2025. Um, and so Chairman Stevens, uh, who we know from here in Waterbury, introduced Alex Farrell, who's the commissioner of the Department of Housing and Community Development, who said that they cannot separate homelessness from the broader housing issue. We've got to deal with the homelessness here in Vermont. Um, and also stated that um, he believes that uh, Act 250 reform alone is not going to solve the problem, uh, same as zoning or repeal reform. Um, when we, if we repeal some of the Act 250 requirements, um, there must be a way to resolve environmental issues and to maintain what we hold dear in Vermont Um it, it's not an either-or situation, I don't think. There must be ways if we could sit down with clear heads and figure out how to allow the construction of uh, of new housing units. Um, it just has to be. Um, we cannot uh, allow this to happen. And I know they have tried, um, House Natural Resources tried for a couple of years to reform Act 250, but ran into roadblocks Um all the time because people are afraid that it's the pendulum is going to swing way over. And I get that. And I don't think there are many people in Vermont that want to see that swing. Um, it's what, what's why people come here. It's um, how we attract tourists. It's who we are as a state. So there's got to be some kind of balance. And maybe now with the, um, 
the flood and all the damage and heartbreak that that brought, it, and they're having meetings about how do we go forward. Maybe this is the time to include, um, all those thoughts about maintaining what, what we are and who we are, um, as a state, but also to address this housing issue. Um, we're sort of forced into it and I'm hoping that uh, there are some great outcomes of all of these, um, outreach efforts with the community. I think people, have good ideas if they're given the opportunity to share them and somebody's listening. Um, and so um, he did say that he thinks, and he's, I think he's right, the multi-layered approach that just not one thing is going to solve this problem, that we have to just keep adding and building on uh, what we'd like to see in the future. We also have, um, and we've talked about this a lot on this program, mental illness and addiction. And, um, we know both of those are issues are growing in leaps and bounds. Many more people are dealing with mental illness. COVID didn't help. Um, and now housing problems and, and the issues that are here before us and then addiction. Um, and, and we have to help those folks as well. Um, and that, that's very complicated factor. Um, and it's hard to, and again, it's not one, not one solving, um, idea. Nobody's going to come in and go, Hey, here's what we need to do when it works. It's that multi-layered approach that we take a little bit from here, a little bit from there and, uh, and hopefully solve, uh, the problem. Um, I am having Mary Moulton from Washington County Mental Health come in to talk about the challenges that her organization face, faces and, uh, what help she's uh, asking from the legislature. It's a very complicated, um, I had Ed Baker in here who does the recovery channel on Burlington. And, um, I found his presentation incredibly sobering about what's, what our folks are dealing with out there with regard to addiction. And he's got some ideas that he's presenting to the legislature as well. Um, let's see what else we've got here. I wanted to, um, I don't think t- there's, uh, uh, there's not some, some magic pill for sure. Um, but act 250 keeps coming up and, um, I wish they would, um, I'm hoping that they're talking to the construction people. And, and, uh, I remember when I was in the department of labor, we would talk to businesses and ask them what they need. And they would all say without every one of them would say they need predictability. When they start a project, they want to know how much it's going to cost and how long the process is so that they can get started and get a project done. And uh, Act 250 does not allow for that because it's a lot of unpredictability and they don't like it. They don't want to enter into, and you can't blame them. Um, they're in business to make money and to keep their employees employed and they want to know how much. And if you can't tell them that, that's a problem. Um, so um, I think I think people are really starting to listen now. Um and uh, if you want a, more information, I'm going to uh, um, bring some of these folks on the on the show to talk about the complications of of trying to address low and moderate income housing. Um, I know Craig Bolio was um, at this committee talking about uh, he's the tax commissioner, um, and he was outlining what the governor's housing package is on H719 which includes uh, property value freezes for highlighted property restorations and new construction. If you're interested in restoring your property and or building new construction, 
Um, there's some property value freezes that would go into effect that um, we would forego taxes on the increased value of a property for five years following the rehab, which um, would be a good incentive for people to fix their homes and or to have some new construction on their property. Um, he also talked about property transfer tax exemption for blighted properties uh, to incentivize renovation and sale. Um, as you know, FEMA and others, uh, there's a buyout for um, blighted properties that you can't fix, and this would impact uh, the property transfer tax that if you're going to sell um, uh, and or try to renovate some of these blighted projects, that there would be some help. Um, and then the third piece of the governor's housing package was to increase in, have an increase in the caps for the downtown and village center tax credits. Uh, from three million to five million annually, um, and they are very focused and uh, effective tool to leverage private investment without a lot of overhead in the downtowns. And I know when I worked for Senator uh, for Senator, for Governor Dean, he was very big on building up our downtowns and village centers, and um, uh, and I think this is a a tax credit from three to five million shift would be uh, would be a real incentive to um, to build perhaps in downtown and village areas. And some of our downtowns get serious, really got hit hard with um, this flood. And as I said, what you see is not necessarily what's going on behind the scenes. So it's an opportunity to move in the direction that we need to move into to provide housing for low and income and moderate income people. One of the other committees that I followed last week was a presentation in House Agricultural Committee. And the first individual to speak was Becca Washington, uh, who's the recreation chair. I like that title. That's what I want to do. I want to be recreation chair. Uh, this is of the Vermont Outdoor Recreation Economic Collaborative. And she was in to review H673. And it proposes to direct the Vermont Outdoor Recreation Economic Collaborative to conduct an outdoor recreation economic impact study. And we were talking about uh, just a little while ago about Vermont. And one of its incredible attractions are our trails and all of the outdoor activities that we offer to tourists and to residents alike. Um, and they also, this bill also creates a position on the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council um, to just move things along and to make sure that people know about all of our trails and greenways and um, and also ask for the appropriate funds to the Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation to oversee the development of many management practices for recreational trails in cooperation with the VTGC. And just so you know, the VTGC is a nonprofit that works to support the Vermont Trails and Outdoor Recreation Community and officially serves as an advisory board to the Vermont Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation. And their mission is driven by a commitment to trails as critical infrastructure in the state. And I think the discussion about uh, proper management techniques is really critical. I'm um, I'm assuming without the correct management approach, our trails could go down the tubes really quickly. Um, and it's something that needs to be constantly um, updated and managed correctly. Um, 
so the bill requests uh, in next year, uh, 25, that $50,000 be appropriated from the general fund to the forest parks and recreation for the purpose of hiring a contractor in partnership with the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council to develop a set of universal trail best management practices. Uh, the BMPs uh, will, um, will take all of the existing um, practices from all over um, and, and really take a look at each one of them and begin adopting uh, the right practice for our Vermont trail system given the type of trails, given the, given the um, weather here, um, giving public access, um, make sure they're accessible to the public and um, are built and maintained to a high standard. Um, I heard of um, uh, a trail for the disabled, uh, people who have wheelchairs and um, uh, walk with walkers. And wasn't that great? I just thought that was the greatest idea to be able to bring everybody wants to be outdoors. Um, I certainly do and would appreciate a, a path that's uh, – that's flat and steady and, and not uh, too many obstacles in the way. Um, I, I can talk a little bit about uh, some of the trail best management practices. Um, what they're meant to do is to have make sure the design, the construction, and management system to reduce and mitigate impacts of the environment and community infrastructure while providing a positive recreational experience for the users. And um, I think that's... I think that's just so critical and so important that everybody, children, you don't want them running and having roots sticking out and tripping and all the stuff that our kids can get themselves into. But how great to have everybody uh, out, have our children out with grandma and grandpa and um, out and enjoying enjoying the trails in Vermont. And some of these trails have vistas um, that are just spectacular um, and uh, that alone is worth the trip sometimes to go up to the top of the mountain and take a look at what Vermont's got to offer. Um, another um, um, management practice that says currently most trail organizations in Vermont use either active-based or organization-based best practices. And although there is alignment between types and organization, there is not a consolidated manual specific to Vermont in which – I can understand and when they're pulling all of these um, groups together, you have to consider Vermont and what uh, what the climate is, what the environment is, and make sure that the trails are designed um, to coincide with um, with what we have to offer to get the most experience. And um, they're asked to this group is going to be asked to create a consolidated set of best management practices. And we're at the first step to making them more accessible to the wide range of trail managers with the goal of increasing the application of an adherence to trail standards. So lots of work to do. Um, and they, uh, Mr. Washburn also presented examples and impact of Vermont's outdoor recreation economy. There's a lot of money for people coming on our uh, bike tours, like the Lamoille Valley bike tours in Johnson. Um, how great is that to be able to join a group, um, take a tour, um, and enjoy, um, you know, enjoy what we have to offer. They also noted that Mavic here in Waterbury, they moved here specifically because of our outdoor recreational opportunities for em- employees. There you go. 
that's an impact on our economic development and welcome Mavic. Um, and also they talked a story about a family that temporarily relocated to East Burke from New Jersey um, during the pandemic and decided to stay because they found a community based around biking. Um, the trail hub in downtown uh, Randolph acts as an anchor for other businesses because people um, go through the hub and uh, there you are. So anyway, that's my report for the legislature. hope you enjoyed it. You've got to pay attention to what they're doing up there. Um, and if you have any questions, give me a call. Um, next, I have coming up Steve Howard, who's the um, executive director for the VSEA. He's got his hands full this year, and we'll be glad to talk to him in just a few minutes. This is Pat McDonald, your host for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. See you soon. <laughs>